hope this story is only one of many stories of Indigenous women that goes on and on and on, that our voices can be celebrated and heard. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with Bitterroot Salish novelist Deborah Magpie Erling about her novel, The Lost Journals of Sacagawea. This is the story of one of the most memorialized women in American history, Sacagawea, a Lemmy Shoshone woman who served as an interpreter and guide for Lewis and Clark's Corps of Discovery. Deborah's lyrical novel brings this mythologized figure to life, casting unsparing light on the men who brutalized her and recentering Sacagawea as the arbiter of her own history, which is ultimately one of survival. Deborah's book is a tool of and for empathy. My own reading experience was one not so much of understanding each word or experience in the novel, but of feeling them. The lost journals of Sacagawea will, I have no doubt, make you feel. Deborah Magpie Erling is the author of Permared and the Lost Journals of Sacagawea. An earlier version of the latter, written in verse, was produced as an artist book during the bicentennial of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Deborah has received both a National Endowment for the Arts Grant and a Guggenheim Fellowship. She has retired from the University of Montana, where she was named Professor Emeritus in 2021. She's Bitterroot Salish. Deborah, welcome to The Right Question. I am so pleased to be here with you, Lauren, and so proud of you. Oh my gosh, the pleasure <laughs> is mine. I don't know if this will go into the, you know, the official conversation that we published, but we're both kind of nervous. Yes. Yeah. I am nervous. I'm nervous about this book and about talking about this book. Why are you nervous about the book? Because I think that um, it takes on the mythology of Lewis and Clark, and it happens in a very particular time, and I've already been accused of um, presentism, (laughs) like that I'm viewing the past with the, the morals of judgment of today. Um, but I don't, I, I think that that's the, the charge of any novelist is to make the past present for us, to make it relevant, to make it real for us, to bring us into a particular moment. So, uh, maybe that's a, that's a good thing. And certainly, uh, the idea of presentism, you know, certainly has racist overtones, um, that you can't make the past present or that you can't make people accountable for the past. And there were good people in the past who who knew things were not good, who knew things uh, that some of the the actions, um, even with Lewis and Clark, um, they understood uh, at some point, I think, particularly Meriwether Lewis, understood that some of his actions had consequences. And uh, there was kind of a gravity to him at times that, you know, expressed that, his belief. If we aren't using a contemporary lens, a knowledgeable lens to look back on our past, aren't we 
aren't we just um, going to repeat the mistakes that we've made? Um, and I'm going to ask you a very broad question. Mm -hmm. I imagine when I edit this conversation, it's going to be the question that actually goes <laughs> first. Who was Sacagawea? When I think about Sacagawea, when I sit with her, I believe she was one of the most extraordinary historical figures to ever live. Her life, her, her desire to live, her personal autonomy, her self-identity, when she was told, when she returns after this long, harrowing journey, when she's stolen from the people that she considers her people and is returned, longing to come home, longing to return to her beloved homeland, to her beloved people, and she's told by the man that she was to marry that she is not... Um, that he won't marry her because she has, she's had a baby with a white man who she was sold to. And she just gets up and stands up for herself and says, you know, in her own way, however she said that to them, which is through all that difficult translation, it was evident, I am going and I want to see the ocean. I am going to see the Great Wells. So when I think of her, I think of her as a woman of vision, that she defined herself in that moment. She was no longer, she was no longer Lemmy Shoshone or Hadatsah, or she was her own person. She was, and she claimed her identity as a sovereign person. And I was so um, moved by that. How much of Sacagawea, as you have written her here, is Deborah Magpie Early? Oh, probably all of it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that I that I think that about myself. I certainly don't. But you know, when we draw upon ourselves, and you know, I would be, I would really be ignoring uh, the sacrosanct nature of all human beings if I were to say, you know, I inhabit Sacagawea because I do not. Um, I only admire her and try to do. Or tried to write, tried to make her available and accessible as a human being to others and not as a tool of manifest destiny, which unfortunately and so sorrowfully, <laughs> I believe that she was when I, you know, when I was ignorant to her story. Can we talk about the tension, certainly that I read in the book, between this idea of sorrow and grief and Ultimately, it felt like a book of mourning. Um, there's so much loss in the book, not only her loss of agency over her own body and these years of her life, um, this loss of um, sacredness um, of, of the, the places and these things and these animals around her. Um, the reclamation of her voice in this book is so joyful to me. So I, I'm reading grief, mourning, sorrow, trauma, but also alongside 
what is actually a, a woman who is, as you've said, discovering her identity and, and really coming into her identity and surviving. And so there is this tension between deep loss and enormous celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that celebration might be tonal. I'm not quite sure. Can you, can you talk towards that tension, even if it was in the writing process or intent, or maybe I'm reading something that's actually not there? You know, I think I probably overuse the idea of sorrow because one of the things that really became deeply ingrained in me when I was reading about the things that surround her life, because she appears very briefly in the journals of Lewis and Clark, but one of the things that struck me was with all of the trauma that she experienced, she had agency. You know, she had the desire to get herself back to her people, like to the Lemmy Shoshone. Like that was really so powerful in her. And when I think about uh, when I think about a young woman carrying a child and carrying a child like a nursing child, you carry a child through these hardships that these men couldn't, you know, were, t- were complaining. They through. were <laughs> whining about at times. Yeah. And especially Charbonneau, you know, was literally crying at certain points in the journey and that never shows with her she is always knows where she's at she knows where she's going she understands like she's never a stranger in this in in the landscape Mm -hmm. she always knows where to find food she knows how to take care of herself and she knows how to take care of a baby in the middle of like on the middle of a trip where you're going with only men and you have to keep yourself clean, you have to keep your baby clean. And, you know, there, there were no, no disposable diapers then. (laughs) And so her, you know, how she must have had to be such a incredible person, a, a, a mother beyond mothers to be able to do what she did to keep that baby alive to keep herself alive under those kind of conditions um i'm certainly not her but have so much admiration and respect for her yeah i wasn't surprised to um feel so emotional while reading but i was not expecting to find that, you know, like, I'm not going to know everything that you're telling me. I'm not going to understand everything that Sacagawea is telling her, you know, eventual readers of these journals. I'm not going to understand everything, but I am going to feel everything. And that is so, it was, it was, it was an emotional journey. I felt everything. And that was something I, it was so successful in that way, um, outside of narratively, I just felt every, everything. I'm so I'm so gratified to hear you say that. Um, you know what? I had such a short window to write this. I had many years. Um, I got a Guggenheim Fellowship on the basis of this proposal. So I um, and during that time, my father died, and so I was in the middle of writing this. Well, I wasn't even in the middle. I just did beginning stages. Just I'd written a couple chapters. Um, and I couldn't, I, for some reason, I just lost heart in it. Uh, I, it was, you know, m- the first parent that died. And so I, uh, you know, was with my father at that time. And then it became kind of a, 
it reminded me so much of that time that it was difficult to enter the story again until, you know, year, many years later. I want to talk, you, you just said entering the story. So mm-hmm. let's talk about the process of writing that. That's somewhere we can, um, <laughs> we've already begun, but we can begin with that because I, I'm, I'm so curious about what the writing process looked like for you. Um, and I'm wondering how you entered and exited the text each time you sat down to write. How do you take on the voice of Sacagawea, who is going through these really, really hard experiences? Her body is experiencing so much. And then how do you exit? How do you step away from the writing desk when you have so immersed yourself in this character? I think as writers, when we're, we're always called to witness um, the world, and we're always called you know, I'm using that word present again, but we're always called, especially when it's about a historical figure, to be present with them in their, you know, in their times of joy and in their times of suffering. And so when it felt at times, there's there's a voice to this piece that rose up organically um, from some place uh, that I call the great mystery um, and when I would sit down, I didn't feel, and I think many writers express this in their own work, I didn't feel that I was the author of this work. I felt I was listening to a story. So I felt that I had to be attentive to the story, and I had to gather this story, and that I had to be such an integral part of the story and carry it. And so... I didn't feel ever imposed upon. It never felt difficult. It actually felt like such a joyful thing to write this story, even through the pain. And um, I have stories that I'm reluctant to tell because they sound, um, I, I don't think they sound disingenuous, but when we talk about the muse or we talk about that great unknown or the great mystery that is writing, which is all that we've ever encountered before from the time that, you know, we become conscious in the world. Um, All of those things, everything that's happening around us at every moment, we take that in. It's part of who we are. It's part of our soul. And our soulful work in life is trying to, as writers, I think, trying to to find the thread that that is reaching out to us from from some unknown place and i feel that i've had experiences with this story that are astonishing to me uh the story comes so quickly and in these bursts and um with a voice that it's, it's a strange voice i think sacagawea trying to to tell her story through layers of language through time and space and the, the, I felt as if somehow in the universe we, we talk about the the web of life and I felt that somehow through the different veils of life that at times she was present with me and I thought you know how um what are the things that bind us together in life? What are these wondrous kinds of things? We talk about muses because I don't feel that we're comfortable in having conversations with the dead. But mm. uh, I think that 
maybe we're we're in this kind of space we occupy like one of the things I love about writing and one of the things that I enjoyed about teaching is trying to help students access to find that the, the narrow pathways back into the subconscious and which is where where is that or consciousness which is outside of us and you know there's so many stories of how we connect with others um, you know there's a sort of the psychic story where you're thinking of somebody and all of a sudden the telephone rings and you think, I was just thinking of you. Was that, you know, and you think, if that, if our thoughts can pass through time and space, can we pick up on historical threads? Can things that were traumatic that happened years ago echo in, in the universe and somehow uh, find their way to us? Is there a pathway to stories that we are reluctant to accept because they, they unground us um, and they take us outside of what's familiar? You're listening to a conversation with novelist Deborah Magpie Erling. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. In this book, you are taking a historical figure and writing a fictional, albeit like entirely empathetic and emotional account of her life at this time. In your first novel, Permared, you took a very real person, your aunt, <laughs> and, and wrote a fictional account of this person's life. I'm wondering, is your writing always towards this idea? Are you always, I don't want to say rewriting someone's history, but are you, Deborah, always rewriting I'm fascinated with the stories that surround us. Um, you know, there's that idea that there's seven stories in the world, there's seven plot lines. But then I think about all of the people, you know, all the stories throughout history that are so interesting. And, you know, you're just, um, and I've been fascinated with, God, so many stories. Um, I, I, And I think it is from coming from... Uh, you know, a place where oral histories were were important, um, that people, you know, in the living breath, people still live. So when my mother would tell me stories about my great-grandmother, and it was her stories that were passed down to her, these stories are living stories to me. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're in the breath. So all of the stories, when I think of historical figures, um, I, you know, I can't help but think about what their life must have been like. And so I, I think, I wouldn't call myself like a historical writer, but I do think that there, I feel called. I'm just so troubled by some of the stories and the way that people have been portrayed. Calamity Jane is another person mm. that calls to me. She, there's that little book that she, have you ever seen that little I have. book? But, yeah. Uh, you know, Calamity Jane's life. And then all of the historians, they, they reduce her to, to nothing more than a saloon girl, a, you know, a prostitute. Mm -hmm. When that's not her life at all, what, you know, a powerful person she was as well. So I think to 
be in conversation with history. And, you know, and that's how I grew up was to mm. be told stories that were, I knew were passed down. And so I think about all the stories that surround us and I'm haunted by stories. Permared was published, what, in 2002? Mm-hmm. How have you changed as a writer since its publication and now as we're looking toward the publication of this, this new novel? How have, you, how have you grown? How have you changed as a writer? Mm. That's kind of a beautiful question. It really is. How have I changed as a writer? Do you know... Here's what's changed for me as a writer. The whole time that I was teaching, I had these stories and it felt like a dam inside me. Like I couldn't write them. I didn't have time. I would, uh, you know, I, I'm so, I admire my colleagues who were able to write when they were teaching. Um, it seemed like I would get so invested in some of my students' stories, and I'm not saying they didn't, but I, I would think about them as if they were my own stories. So it occupied my writing, writerly time. When I finished and when I was introduced to Daniel Slager and he did something for me that no one has done, not even myself, uh, I go, how do you want me to write this? Um, Because it was submitted to you as this long piece of poetry. And he said to me, which I just actually startled me. It sort of awakened me to the possibilities. But he said, any way that you want to write this, Deborah, I want it. I want this story. I want your writing. And I said, any way? And I I said, you mean if I write this all as a long book of, you know, shattered prose that looks like poetry, that you would take that and all the, and that's all in all this messiness? And he said, yes. And I'll, and he just kept reassuring me that he trusted my voice as a writer. And here I am. I don't even trust my voice as a writer. Who trusts their voice as a writer? <laughs> and he finally said, here you go. Here's a great gift, and it's your voice. Use it the way you want to use it. With no restrictions, I will make this a book. I want to talk about the form of this book, Um the, the the publisher blurb will say that it's lyrical prose, and that's not necessarily the form. I want to talk about this idea of the journal, right? Because the journals of Lewis and Clark are, you know, this um, widely known, you know, for a long time that they were the documents that we knew Sacagawea's story by, right? She She is mentioned in these documents. And I'm wondering, I just want, I guess I'll, I'll move back. Here in Montana, right, Lewis and Clark is so tightly wound into this history of our state and the stories that we tell everyone and ourselves about this history of our state. And I'm wondering, because journals seem like kind of like a reclamation of that form, right? Um, I'm wondering, though, if if the journal as a genre if we're going to call it that, why, what, what made it the perfect way to tell Sacagawea's story? The journal, the entry, the daily uh-huh. um, chronicling. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, I, I was really, <laughs> like, I was kind of, I don't know, I, I've always been, 
sort of reluctant to enter the Lewis and Clark journals. They're massive. Uh, there's so many typos in them, and there uh, so many misspellings. <laughs> like, and uh, this, this, but this great kind of journey that they went on, where they cataloged everything, they named everything. And uh, one of the things that I thought was kind of peculiar is, in very rare circumstances, did they ever tell stories? They wouldn't. They thought the stories were. Um, that the Native people would tell them are sort of ridiculous or they just didn't have time for them. And so they were very meticulous about the stories that they chose to tell. And so when I went on kind of my own uh, journey into this book, I wanted to give her a journal. I wanted to give her a voice to tell her own story, to chronicle it. I feel like this conversation has ebbed and flowed in many different directions, Deborah. but I really want readers to get a sense of the writing and, and this story. Mm-hmm. Would you mind reading something from it? Um, when I speak about Dubai, um, it is uh, the sun. So... Days of Dubai. Dubai lights the village, and men must not be named, pass by earth lodges with fire-lit eyes. They are men, and they are not men. They are bigger, wider, sacred. Their bodies painted with vermilion and white clay. They change that which is all around them. Dubai hovers, sizzles river fog, and cloaks the people in clouds. Anin women feel brave now. Dubai gives them power. They talk loudly about white men who bring trade goods in trouble. Bold Anin women shout at white men from the doors of their lodges. Do not swarm us. Go home. You bring nothing but bad medicine. They poison our men with want, they tell me. Now nothing pleases them. Women point their lips and spit at white men, unloading carry dogs and horses. They tread our paths and trample good medicine. They come for us even after our men give us away to them. They defile our ceremonies. The white men do not step aside as men must not be named pass. They skunk twitch and sleep eye the sacred. In Charbonneau's lodge, horses skitter and rear. Wind chases dust. Whips and whistles and shrills. My robe flares and catches me up. I am a bird flapping. I am small heartbeats in a giant land. I talked to a handful of booksellers around Montana, and your book was recommended so thoroughly and enthusiastically by them. I told one, I was like, I really, truly hope that the the public receives this book as wildly and as enthusiastically as the booksellers that I've talked to have, because I have heard nothing but like enormous praise from everyone I've talked to. Thank you. That humbles me. And I hope this story is only one of many stories um, of indigenous women that goes on and on and on that our voices can be celebrated and heard and not suppressed not silenced i think sacagawea's voice was silenced for 
too long for too many years. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me today. I, it was my immense pleasure. Oh, such an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. That was novelist Deborah Magpie Erling, author of The Lost Journals of Sacagawea, published by Milkweed Editions. Look for more information about Deborah at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris also engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Floridus. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008, and thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.